0: Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TST Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest instalment of our executive interview series. On this episode, I'm joined by Melanie Lang, the co-founder and CEO of metal additive manufacturing firm Formalloy. Lang founded Formalloy in 2016 alongside CTO Jeff Ryman. Lang and Ryman first met as interns at Boeing and reconnected years later when they spotted an opportunity for directed energy deposition technology in industries such as aerospace. Lang herself started out as an aerospace engineer landing a role at Lockheed Martin after a stint at Boeing where she worked in algorithm development for air defense systems. While at Lockheed she also took part in a three-year leadership program which resulted in a master's degree and set her on a path that would eventually see her start up her own company. Throughout the episode, we discussed the product portfolio of that company, how Formalloy commenced work with the likes of NASA, and what the key opportunities are for DED technology in aerospace and beyond. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head over to TSTmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly Additive Insight newsletter for free. Melanie, welcome to the Additive Insight podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm really good, thanks for having me.
0: No worries at all. So I wanted to start, if that was okay, um, with your career uh, pre-formaloid before we we go into the Formaloid business. I believe you're an aerospace engineer. So can you tell me about um, the roles you had pre-formaloid and I guess what your duties were in those um, aerospace engineering roles?
1: Sure, yeah. Like you said, I was an aerospace engineer. Uh, That was my degree in undergrad. And I went to work for a large uh, aerospace and defense company. Uh, I I actually had interned at Boeing for a couple years, and then I went to go work for Lockheed Martin full-time. And uh, when I joined Lockheed, I was part of their, uh, they call it the leadership development program, which gives I'll say early and sometimes mid-career participants, opportunities to work in a variety of functions and sort of help them figure out, you know, where where their best place is going to be, you know, what type of work they want to do going forward. And uh, we get some extra curriculum in there as well to help build other uh, leadership aspects like finance, for example, for engineers. So uh, that was an awesome program. Uh, That was a three-year program. And while you do that program, you get a master's degree, uh, so I got uh, a master's degree during that time as well in system architecture and engineering from University of Southern California and uh, I started like you said as an aerospace engineer and one of my first jobs out of college was to work on algorithm development for an air defense system so I was looking at you know how things fly why things fly the way they do and then how do you identify uh, what something is when it's flying based on its characteristics so that was a great job to have as a as an aerospace engineer and I started uh, learning more about uh, algorithm development and the whole software development side. So that was sort of my first foray into, you know, technology at an aerospace company. And I uh, got to do and see a lot of really cool things. It was a uh, international program, so I got to spend significant time abroad uh, and working with our partners and it was just a great experience. Uh, what I did realize as part of uh, my first set of work and throughout the leadership development program was that I really enjoyed working with people uh, just as much, if not more so as technology. So I knew I wanted to stay in a technical field, but I wanted to have a lot of engagement with other people working in teams, you know, maybe even being a team leader. And that initially led me to more of a program management path. And so that was sort of my next career move was to do some program management and then of course with that I got the you know more of the finance side the the program and project management side and also just understanding you know working with customers and you know meeting customer requirements and and sort of the you know the broader scope of pro, of program and project management and then uh in my latter years at, at Lockheed I was in uh more of a business development role uh as a capture manager so I was Uh, leading and working on large proposal efforts, and then assisting with the transition so they could execute successfully. And during that time, in the later years, I started getting into 3D printing as a hobbyist. And I did not make the connection or really think that I would be, um, you know, a women in 3D printing ambassador of the future. It wasn't, it wasn't on my game plan, just because I didn't even know the power of 3D printing yet. Uh, but that's really where I was first exposed uh, was as a
0: hobbyist. Mm. So from your <clears throat> your time in the kind of you know in the aerospace industry, f- whether whether that be as you know an engineer or in the you know the the business development side as as you progressed, was there did you come across 3D printing technology at all, or was your your absolute first um kind of insight into technology from a hobbyist perspective?
1: Yeah, I did. I did have some really early exposure to 3D printing. It was a stereolithography lithography system. And uh, one of my projects, I was able to have something built uh, very early on in my career using the stereolithography lithography, lithography system. Um, of course, there was a uh, you know, technician that was helping run it. I didn't actually get to run the system, but I got to see a design come to life with 3D printing. And then uh, I didn't really see it again until several years later when I started investigating it more as a hobbyist, uh, and then I realized, yeah, this is actually in, you know, more things than you might think, or used for, you know, things that that you haven't thought of. Um, so yeah, but there was a big gap in time. There was a probably a twelve or thirteen year gap between when I first saw the stereolithography to when I got into it as a hobbyist, and then remembered back, oh yeah, I did, I did uh, see that um Mm. I, I still have the little the little piece that was uh 3D printed then on my desk
0: oh wow that's cool so that very first exposure to 3D printing with with SLA what do you remember what your kind of impression of it was back then did you think anything of it were you kind of amazed at it were you did you just kind of shrug it off as you know just another technical advancement that maybe you see all the time what was your initial perception of it back then
1: I was, I was amazed by it because the first time you see something sort of, you know, come to life, <laughs> you know, 3d, mm-hmm. wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. But given the materials and things that were used and the, you know, there was a lot of limitations in the systems at the time. So I thought, yeah, this is great. If you're trying to uh, build something for fit up or, you know, you just want to be able to hold it in your hand and, um, you know, see how it looks or something. Sure. You know, you can, you know, people have little, you know, things on their desk, little, you know, toys and things. Um, but I wasn't able at that time to think about how it would be used like it's used today with these, mm-hmm. you know, highly sophisticated materials and geometries and technology. So um, it, it took me a long time from my first exposure until now to really understand that full power.
0: You, you mentioned, you know, the the interest in 3D printing as a, as a hobbyist, and you also um, mentioned before the, the kind of um leadership development and leadership management um programs you were you were moving through so tell me how you you got from a you know aerospace engineer slash business development um worker to um, the founder of a, of a 3d printing company what what was that transition like and what happened in between those phases
1: I'm sure. Well, in my, in my hobbyist days, I was really just investigating the technology as a, you know, as a hobby, you know, going to some maker fairs, um, you know, just seeing what it can do. I thought it was pretty interesting from a, you know, fashion tech kind of side and and jewelry. That's sort of what first interested me about it. Um, but I did think it was pretty awesome that you could have these you know, relatively inexpensive 3D printers at your home, and and you could use it to make, you know, basically whatever you whatever you want. Um, and at the same time, I was running into challenges and learning more about some of the challenges on these, you know, very large defense programs, which is many times the sustainment tail. You know, you can build these high tech systems and you can field them, and they're they're incredible. But sometimes the the challenges with them are not the the high tech stuff that you would think. It's how do you get spare parts to the right place at the right time? How do you keep things in the field? Um, how do you support those uh, you know, sometimes much longer than their expected life and and that's what we're seeing a lot now in defense. you know we're seeing you know uh, technology and products that are way outlasting the life that they expected, and they have to be able to maintain those and and get spare parts. and, that's really when the light bulb started going off in terms of, Hey, you can do more with 3d printing than, you know, make, make little toys to sit on your desk. You know, that that's cool uh, as well. But, you know, what if you could put a 3d printer at some Ford operating location and now you can print parts or repair parts when they need to be repaired. Uh, and that, that's really how my eyes started opening up and, and the two worlds started merging between, you know, hobby and, you know, some, some challenging things going on at work.
0: Mm. And you, you started up Formaloy with um, Jeff Ryman, who um, I I think is the CTO currently of a Um So how did you two meet? And at what point did you really start to get the ball rolling on Formaloy and, you know, starting up a business, which I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you've ever done before Formaloy. So how did that all right. come about? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so um, Jeff and I actually met at, at Boeing. I mentioned I had interned there a couple of years and he did as well. Uh, Jeff's background is in mechanical design. And um, so it's a good fit in terms of, I was thinking about applications and end use and how you would use this. And uh, Jeff has a very good uh, and strong design background. And um, prior to Form Alloy, he was working for uh, cutting cutting tool manufacturer and uh, really doing all the the design uh, for them. So he had a lot of familiarity with how you design these machines in terms of you know, motion and control. And uh, that's really when we started putting our brains together, saying, "Hey, I have some ideas for what we could do with this machine and maybe how it should work." And he knows how to build and execute, you know a design or idea in terms of a machine tool. And uh, with that, you know, we were able to make the first, you know, very rudimentary system. We took it to Rapid in 2016. That was our, our very first uh, show and I uh, had the working prototype there. And that's where we got some of our very first customers, including NASA. NASA was one of the first. There was a few other, um, you know, big, big companies that came to us and said, you know, wow, this is a really unique technology and it's something that we're really looking for you know, at the time, uh, you know, metals were popular, but I would say DED was not that well known of a technology. I think now it's become more well known and people are becoming more aware of it. But at the time, you know, people weren't as familiar with it. So I think the fact that you can build parts, you can repair parts, you can do things with multi materials, you can do research on, you know, new alloys, I think is, you know, it's a great technology that has Quite a few different use cases.
0: Mm-hmm. I was going to ask how you, you know, you start up a new business um, with an idea. How you then go about connecting and contacting with industries like aerospace um, and defense. Obviously, you, you mentioned there you first customers you you secured at um, a trade show like Rapid. But can you tell me what the what some of the early conversations were that you were having with players in in those industries?
1: Yeah, it it was really about like for NASA, for example, they had some really unique materials that they wanted uh, rocket nozzle components to be built with so they could do some further testing. And, you know, with our system, we can run a a very wide range of of alloys. And so that was a a good fit there. Uh, Also, some of the geometry complexities that are very challenging to achieve. And if you're you know from from you know a NASA type of use case, if you want to test out new material or new geometry, uh, you don't want to have to invest, let's say you know a million dollars sometimes even more on tooling to have something made just so you can test it out so three d printing is a was a great early use case, still is a good use case, um but was one of the great early use cases for you know, trying out new materials, new geometries, uh, even new geometries that have multi-material uh, use case. And uh, those are some of the, the earliest conversations. And uh, it's really just grown from there and, and expanded because, you know, aerospace is obviously one good use case for it, but there's there's many others. And mm-hmm. I think as people become more comfortable with the technology and it becomes more adopted, you're going to see DED in in many more industries. Today's episode is sponsored by Nexa3D. Here, Michael Curry, vice president and general manager for Nexa3D's desktop business unit, discusses ultra fast printing on the desktop with the zip, the benefits of open versus closed material systems, and creating sustainable three D printers and consumables.
2: So people, once they get a technology that is four to, to, to eight times faster, you see this really big behavior shift where people don't go back. You had people that were would go to Blockbuster or other rental uh, locations and get videos. You know, they might wait wait a week to get uh, a video in stock. Then along came Netflix and kind of disrupted that with on-demand CDs. And then of course, Netflix then got disrupted by say iTunes from Apple. Uh, then Netflix disrupted again with the idea of, of true streaming. So you don't see people who are streaming now going back and asking for uh, a cheaper overnight download from iTunes. Like that's, that's not the market anymore. And so we're seeing the same thing for 3D printers. Once you experience a much faster speed, it makes it very difficult for you to wanna to go back to a slower speed. Uh, so as an example, we just uh, had a client who just received the zip and he did a side-by-side print on another very common SLA desktop printer in the market. Uh, the print that he traditionally would do took him five hours. The one he did on the zip took him 45 minutes. So that's a seven times improvement. And what that means for him is that you know he can now print by the hour each day uh, whereas before he might do one print in the morning and then kick off an overnight print. So his productivity is going to be dramatically increased. Or if you're trying to do a bit of a batch production of, of parts, you'll be able to get that many more batches done in, in a given period of time. So I think that once people see that and f- experience that, it's going to be very difficult to go back to a, a, a slower process.
1: Can you talk about the materials that Zip uses in regards to open versus closed material systems? So
2: the Zip in itself is an open uh, platform for material development. We are really taking a close look at the various material providers in the marketplace, and we're curating and finding what we think are like really good materials. And then we will validate those and in some cases also uh, bring them into our platform and, and resell them and we, you kind of get our stamp of approval that, hey, we think this is a really good resin. It's superior to its peers in terms of performance or some other aspect, maybe price, uh, value, and we'll make those next and branded. But then our systems are also open. So if you want to go ahead and, and find a resin that you prefer or a color that you need, we also have an open system where you can unlock all the same controls that our internal process team uses to develop resins.
1: I understand that another way the the Zip has been built is to really consider sustainability. How does the Zip ecosystem address this?
2: A lot of people complain in the desktop space around the amount of waste that's generated. I think mm. people in the industrial setting, maybe they, 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 they know that waste is a byproduct. But I think at the desktop, when you're using a printer as an individual, it maybe come might come as a bit of a surprise. So the one thing that, the two things we're doing in terms of our resin management, uh, we are using aluminum uh, bottles Uh, that they themselves can be made from recycled material or they can also be recycled themselves after use. We also have the ability to refill them. And then the second one is in our vat system. So we have an interchangeable membrane and and a solid metal vat. So when your membrane uh, exceeds its life or maybe has a puncture or something like that, you can just simply unsnap the membrane and dispose of that and snap a new membrane in. And that, that's a really big uh, improvement um, compared to some of the other systems where you're basically throwing away the entire vat, and that's a lot of uh, energy that you're throwing away in that process. Uh, so those are the two things around resin management. And then I guess lastly, the Zip itself, uh, we chose to make it an, an all-metal machine. Um, many desktop class machines are made out of plastic. So we're kind of making this sturdy, robust, rigid system. And then our goal in the future is to uh, make modular enhancements to that core. So you don't don't end up throwing away your printer just because you want to upgrade its internal components. For more
1: information, visit nexa3d.com.
0: You, you mentioned um, you know, how much um it's grown over the over the last few years. You in 2016 you take your first prototype, and you know, a few years later you've got the the L and X series of um directed energy deposition systems. And I know that there's um several different configurations of these platforms. So can you talk me through what those configurations are? And I guess the the capabilities of them that that make them different to the others?
1: Sure. Yeah. Like you said, we have an L series machine and an X series machine. The X series machine can run in ambient or inert environment. And in an inert environment, it is more of a, a temporary inert environment. So you're flooding the box with argon and you're doing your build and then it will go back to inert. So that's a good option if you're working with a range of materials and you don't always want to deal with uh, glove box type operations. The L series is closed loop environmental control. So it's going to keep your oxygen and moisture content uh, below a certain level. And that will stay like that predominantly for for all the builds. Um, So again, it depends on the materials or what, what the customer is trying to achieve, or we could recommend one or the other. And then they are both available in different sizes. So we have a, a smaller build volume system, which is about a 250 millimeter uh, system. And then we have the larger system, which is a 1.1 meter by one meter by about uh, 650 millimeters in Z. And of course, we can do custom sizes. We've done some custom sizes. Um, it is a very scalable technology. So if the particular part or application isn't a good fit for those sizes, you know, because you're blowing the powder where you need it, it is fairly open in terms of sizing. Mm. Uh, Some of the other capabilities, like you mentioned, we offer quite a, a good suite of in situ monitoring and control. And that's really been one of our big differentiators. We need DED systems to operate more like any other standard machine tool. So that way they can be more widely adopted for these other applications. So you can't count on a material scientist or a PhD or even a machine operator for that matter to stand at a machine during a build and make little changes as the build goes. One, it's very expensive from a labor perspective to have someone that has to stand at the machine and make adjustments. And two, every time an operator interacts with the machine during the build, you lose your repeatability because you're not able to, even if you know what the operator did and where, when you try to repeat that, there's going to be some variation. So I think it's very important to allow your machines to operate autonomously as much as possible for both the cost saving and repeatability. But in order to do that, you have to have really good data and sensing and control over the process. And that's really what we've been focused on is that sensing and control and having these machines run autonomously so that after setup, you don't need to stand at the machine and make changes to your laser power and your scan speed and that kind of thing. Um, Those types of things can be done for you in closed loop. And then from a repeatability standpoint, you can replay a file that's already been run and then you can use your sensors in more of a monitoring just to make sure that there was no deltas. So there's different ways you can use it. Um, and I don't want you know people to think that when you're running these sensors and you're running autonomous, you have to always just let, you know the laser power is gonna be all over the place and that's gonna cause variation. It's, it's not really like that. You can run these sensors in closed loop mode in order to define where you should be in terms of parameters and then if you want to run the same file again, you can, and you can run the, the sensors in more of a, uh, you know, listening listening mode, and they're just looking for variation. Mm-hmm. And then the, the final thing is, and we do have some specialty equipment uh, for some unique applications. You know, I mentioned multi-material or functionally graded components are a very straightforward application for DED because powder changeover is uh, very efficient in DED. And uh, we have some specialty equipment for that, such as the alloy development feeder, which is a 16 hopper system. So you can use that to execute very specific gradient strategies. And you can also use it for, of course, alloy development as you hear in the name. Uh, So you can deposit different alloy variations very quickly and get to your solution, you know, much more quickly. Uh, And that's been a really exciting up and coming application.
0: Mm, Yeah, I wanted to touch on the alloy development feeder. Um, As you say, you know, Provides capabilities for materials development. So, can you explain how exactly um, a a user would would harness that? And I guess why it's why you feel it's such an important part of your portfolio.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think in general alloy development is key to our entire industry moving forward. I think that we are limiting ourselves right now to a set of materials that has been around for. You know, decades, if not centuries, not all those materials work well with the additive process. It's completely different than some of your traditional processing methods. And so, if we can start to think about as an industry and as end users, how do you want your part to perform? And then find an alloy or custom alloy that can meet your requirements through additive, you know, rather than saying, you know, this part must be you know, 316 stainless or tie 6-4 or whatever it might be. Let's get to a point where we can talk about what the part needs to do and how it needs to perform and then go backwards and and make that your requirement. So, um, and that's why we designed the alloy development feeders to help enable that mindset and that, that path forward. Um, so the alloy development feeder enables, uh, like I said, with one alloy development feeder, you can have 16 different hoppers. You can also have multiple alloy development feeders if you need to deposit more alloy variations than that, you know, very quickly. Uh, And we have, you know, one customer that on a build plate that's a little larger than the size of a quarter, they're depositing, single lines of 16 different alloy variations and then they're able to use an auto SEM to fully characterize those materials and you know it's it's pretty amazing I think uh, this particular professor that's doing that work I think he has a goal to do um, something like 100 alloys in 48 hours or something like that where you would deposit them and get full characterization of course there's a lot of automation in there Um, but the alloy development feeder is one way that you you can, you know, very quickly deposit those alloy variations.
0: Mm, That's interesting. In terms of, um, I've been having um, a few conversations recently about this very thing, this idea of um, developing, you know, custom alloys and and new formulations. Um, And obviously there's a bunch of opportunity there, but what would you say are the the challenges, I guess? Is there a, like a resistance or a, a hesitance um that that we also need to kind of break through before we can um you know really get the benefit of of these kind of tools are you are you seeing that out on the market
1: i think what we are seeing right now is people are using the technology in that way in terms of new alloy development who are in in the field of developing new materials and new alloys i think There still are some roadblocks that exist when you talk about that broader application that we started with, where you have a component and you know what you want that component to do and how you want it to perform, and then working backwards from there to get to you know what should the initial alloy be in order to do that. Uh, There are some roadblocks there. I think one of the big roadblocks with new materials or you know functionally graded materials is building trust in these additive processes, you know, not, not just DED, but finding a way to build trust in the process so that customers are able to change to a different material or vary the alloy or use a multi-material component without having to embark on a new million you know, dollar uh, you know, testing plan in order to you know, qualify the, the material. So I think we all need to be thinking about how do we make these machines more user friendly and capture data that can be used to analyze the quality of the component and the performance of it and even the performance of the material without having to go through, you know, sometimes years worth of testing, you know, just to switch over to a different material or different process. Mm. Uh, So I think that's one of the biggest roadblocks um, is, is that.
0: Um, I also wanted to touch on um, another element of uh, the the Formaloid product portfolio on the on the software side, the um, DED Smart or, or Dead Smart um, platform. Can you tell me about the capabilities of, of that software and how it complements, um, you know, the, the hardware offering that that we've been talking about?
1: Of course, and and that's a a great transi- transition actually, because Dead Smart is all about harnessing the power of the data. There's a lot of data that's generated in these processes and we can you know, do nothing with it or we can do something with it and make the processes um, better and more trustworthy. And that's really what Dead Smart is all about. So the software is capturing in real time all of the machine data as well as all the sensor data and then allowing the user to export that data after the build for analysis. And we have a a tool that goes along with it, which is the dead smart visualize tool, and that very quickly can do uh, some plots and, and graphs and some simple data analytics to show you if there's any outliers in the data. And we've been able to prove that utilizing this data, you can really understand the quality of your part. So you, you, you might be able to drastically cut down on some of your uh, your test builds, your tensile bars, your metallurgical samples, if you can show that as long as your machine data and sensor data are staying within these regions, you you can expect certain results from the component, uh, I think will help us get there. Uh, and, that's, and that's really what that software is all about is um, you know, getting to a point where you can use, you know what, what we're calling you know, digital build certification, You know, can you use the data to certify your part without having to go through the full rigor of uh, testing as it's done today, which includes a lot of destructive testing. It's obviously very expensive. Mm. I think the second part of the dead smart software is uh, the usability, because you can use the data that is being collected as part of dead smart to make the machines more user friendly, to run autonomously, to record not only build data, but also any interaction with the machine that a user might have. So if you are doing parameter development and it does require a user to make some adjustments to the build, those are all being recorded and will be automated when you run them again. Uh, so I think those are the two the two main things as one, just ensuring build quality and knowing that you have the full build history. And then the second piece, making the machines uh, more user-friendly and more repeatable if you do have an operator interaction.
0: Mm. In, in terms of real world uses of, of DED technology today, and I know sometimes, um, unfortunately, we're not able to, to go into the specifics as much as we would like to. But what do you see as the kind of primary applications or, or application opportunities that, that really uh, show off the benefits of, of DED?
1: I think beyond obviously the alloy development stuff is a very, um, you know, more research, you know, kind of forward looking, I think in an immediate sense, it is the repair applications and the uh, on-demand, you know, build type of uh, scenario Mm -hmm. Um, from a repair standpoint, you can repair and put parts back into service. You can also say, hey, this part continues to wear in the same area. You know, this shaft continues to wear in the same place. How about we use some type of wear resistant material there instead and extend the life of the part? Um, And I think sometimes those applications are some of the low hanging fruit. You know, there's a a lot that you can do with this technology. And I think if there are any repair applications where um, you can add a small amount of material, material back onto a part, and get it back into service, sometimes that helps the technology adoption. And then you can go on from there to, wow, now we also have opened up the design space in terms of geometry and materials and, um, you know, all these other things.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you you talked briefly before as well about um, the, the idea of multi-material um, 3D printing with DED. Um, so, you know, you, you slice in multiple metal within the same um build to produce parts um and i gathered from a, a conversation we had earlier this year um at amug and conversations i had with other people at amug that there was a lot of excitement around that concept of, of printing with multiple metals on the same build what would you say needs to happen for multi material dd to i guess a become a reality but b become kind of uh, i guess commonplace and like a you know not not the exception but the rule
1: yeah again i think it's all about how do we generate a build or a part that can be trusted that that people are going to trust the integrity of that part Uh, because otherwise when you're using you know some type of functionally graded material multi-material any type of material concerns that you had are are really you know, they go up exponentially when you talk about, you know, now each layer is, you know, has a slightly different composition because we're slowly transitioning from, you know, a steel to a inconel um, alloy. So I think just finding ways to trust the process, uh, you know, either through data or testing would really help that adoption. Uh, because if you can trust what is in the build, I think people would be much more open to try it um, but right now they're concerned, they're saying, hey, is there any brittle intermetallics that are forming when you put these two materials that don't make each other together? Is there porosity in there? Um, you know, what does the grain structure look like? You know, where is my part going to fail? And all that can be more unpredictable now when you've just introduced a whole host of new materials and uh, compositions, you know, throughout a component. So, um, again, I'll go back to, you know, the data is is very important.
0: Mm. Um and my last question, um, Melanie. Um the DED subsector, I guess, of, of AM is a pretty competitive space at this point. Um, there's a whole host of companies um that are offering solutions in, in the market. And as as we've talked about, the likes of NASA, the DOD as well, are, are big users of the technology. So what do you think um the future holds for for DED and what impact um or all of the companies offering these solutions, including yourselves and all of your technologies go into have, do you think?
1: Now, I think one of the more immediate impacts is certainly reducing supply chain risk. You know, we've talked about, there's obviously reshoring initiatives, you know, going on right now in the US. And I think this is a technology that can really help us get there. Mm. And I think it's because you can build parts, you know, quickly, it's affordable, it's efficient from a powder standpoint, you have lower feedstock costs, you have typically lower cost of total ownership uh, for this type of technology, you know, particularly when you're running these parts autonomously and you can you know, start the part and it can run all night, you don't need an operator to stand there and, and do any monitoring on it. So I do see it expanding into, you know, general industry, which is much larger even than aerospace uh, for those you know, simple types of things, you know, brackets and, you know, just simple geometry parts that are causing disruptions right now in our supply chain. Um, And then I think, you know, more forward looking that will be very impactful to, or DED will have a big impact on is the ability to work with these new alloys and up and coming alloys and functionally graded components as people are more comfortable with the additive process and they're able to understand and predict how materials will perform in the field you know, this is going to be a huge opportunity to say, hey, we, you know, our parts can last, you know, 50% longer or they perform better because, you know, you're able to use a uh, more, um, you know, thermally friendly uh, approach with a functionally graded. And so I, I just really see so many opportunities for that, you know, a little bit more forward looking.